Well, tonight, as you can see in the screen behind me, uh, we're going to be thinking about the return of the king, or the return of King Jesus. And if you've been with us in our series throughout uh, Revelation, you will know that this is the moment we have been waiting for right from the very beginning of this book. Revelation, you will know, is all about the victory of Jesus. The Lamb wins. Isn't that what we've said time and time again? And as we've gone through the book, we've needed to remember that because we've seen lots of different things. We've, we've read about the opposition that God's people are going to come under. We've, we, we've, we've learned about the increasing pressures that we're going to face. And we've even studied the enemy who is trying to destroy us. But all along, throughout the chapters and pages of this book, we've been called to persevere as God's people. And we've been called to persevere under the reason or with the fact, with the assurance that Jesus will one day return and that victory will be his. Well, if you have been with us since the middle of August, it might have felt like you're even trying to endure through your studies of Revelation. And if that's the case, well, well done. You've made it to Revelation 19. And here today in this passage, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, Jesus' return is before us. Now, before we get into these verses and, and think about why they are such good news, I want to begin um, by kind of giving us an, an overview of uh, the passage, overview of where we're going with this um, chapter, these verses, by describing to you a scene uh, from the movie, um, The Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you've ever seen The Lord of the Rings, and if you haven't, hopefully I'll be able to describe it to you adequately enough. But this particular scene comes from the second film uh, called The Two Towers, and it's in that part of the movie where there are a people group called uh, the people of Rohan, and they have retreated to this place called Helm's Deep. And the reason these people, these men and women and children, have done this is because Saruman and his army of orcs, orcs are immensely fierce and powerful beings, have attacked them. And Saruman has, a, has ordered his orcs to destroy everyone inside Helm's Deep. And after four days of intense attack, they have begun to breach the walls and the gates of the city. But just as defeat seems inevitable, the camera or the focus in the book turns to the east, where on a hill there is a rider on a white horse. And as his army gathers round him, and as they issue their battle cry, the orcs turn to fight. But just as the two are about to clash, as depicted in this picture, the sun rises over the hill and shines into the eyes of Saruman's army. And the result, as you can see there, is that the rider on the white horse and his army charge through the scores of orcs, destroying them all and thus saving the city. That's brilliant scene in the movie and indeed in the book. And the author of that book, J.R.R. Tolkien, I'm sure, included these details deliberately. And I'm almost entirely sure 
that he included these details with this passage in mind. Because just as the men and women and children of Rohan faced destruction at the hands of evil, so do God's people face an evil that wishes to destroy them. And just as Gandalf, the wizard on the white horse, came just at the right time to save them, so too will Jesus return to destroy the enemy and save his people. And that is what this passage is about tonight. And the great thing about our passage is, although it might seem like a made-up story that someone like J.R.R. Tolkien might have imagined, it might even seem like wishful thinking. Wouldn't it be great if this were true? Uh, 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 you know, someone coming, riding in glory, with glory on his white horse to save us? This passage is in the Bible. And it tells us of the certain return of Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that he is going to come at just the right time. And he will save his people from the enemy who wishes to destroy them. The reason I tell this story and the reason I give this sort of overview of this passage is because if you're sitting here this evening and, and if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, then I want you to know that this passage is here to encourage you. I, I want you to know that as you endeavor to persevere in this world, that this passage will remind you of the sure and certain outcome and it will remind you to keep trusting Jesus and to keep faithfully waiting for his return. The reason I tell this story is because if you're not a Christian here this evening, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, well, you know how it's going to end from the story that I've just told you. But I invite you not to take my word for it or J.R.R. Tolkien's word for it, but to look with us at God's word and to witness the return of a king whose power is unrivaled and whose victory is certain. And as, I, as we look at him together, I hope you're not going to be like these orcs in this picture behind me who turned in their foolishness thinking that they could defeat Gandalf. But that when you see the real rider on a white horse, when you see King Jesus, that you will bow the knee, bow the knee and plead for forgiveness and come to worship him as the true king. And as my prayer for the evening, as we look at this passage, the return of King Jesus. And, and to help us see this, because like I said, we need to see this from God's word itself. I've divided this passage into two uh, points. Uh, the first of all, we're going to see that it is the powerful return of Christ. And then we're going to look at the victorious return of Christ. So if you're taking notes, don't worry, I'll put these points up as we go along. And the first thing we're going to see is the powerful return of Christ. And at this point, really, it's quite straightforward, isn't it? We're going to see that Jesus will return in power. And we see this from verses 11 to 18. And as we look at these, we're going to see sort of three things. We're going to see that Jesus is coming, that he is the king of kings, and that he will come in power. So let's spend some time looking at these uh, verses 11 to 18 uh, to see for ourselves. So let's have a look down. You'll hopefully have your Bibles open. So look with me at verse 11. And you'll see there immediately, as we've, we've said, that these verses are about a rider on a white horse. But, but as we look at these verses, we're going to see that this rider is indeed Jesus Christ. 
Have a look, for instance, at verse 11 and see how John sees this writer and he says the writer is called faithful and true. If you've been with us throughout our series, you'll recognize those words, I hope. Because that is what Jesus calls himself in the letter to the Laodiceans, all the way back in Revelation 3. And then in in verse 12, keep your eyes on the passage, you'll see there that we're told that he has the name no one can say. Now, we know later on in verse 16 that he tells us his name, but this is a way of saying that this writer has a name that no one can say. In other words, he has the name of God, the, the name that no one is even allowed to utter. And then in verse 13, what are we told right at the end of that verse? That he is the word of God. Of course, we recognize this, don't we, from elsewhere in John's writings, from John chapter 1, no less. And so it is clear, isn't it, this writer is Jesus, but he is Jesus, the Son of God. Well, as well as being the Son of God who is coming, we see that Jesus is also the King. And again, the, the evidence for this is littered throughout our passage, isn't it? Verse 12, how does it describe him? He says, on his head are many crowns. It's not that his head is massive or that there are tiny crowns. It's an image, isn't it? An image of his power and his authority, of his, of his royalty. And then verse 15, you see there, there are some words quoted. It's a quote, isn't it? He will rule them with an iron scepter. You recognize that from the very start of our service? Alistair read from Psalm 2, didn't he? And it's a psalm about God's king. And then in case we're still not getting it, what does verse 16 say? On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so here we have this wonderful image of this rider on a white horse. But we can say that it is Jesus. And it's not a false Christ like we have seen in previous chapters of Revelation. It's not like the dragon or the beast that pretends to be Jesus. This is the Son of God, the Word of God. And these verses tell us clearly that He is coming in power. And He is coming to reclaim the earth from which He was once rejected. And it's this reclaiming, this coming in power to take back what is His, is what we see in the remaining verses. I'm going to look down again in our passage, because you'll see it, it, it tells us that He's coming with His righteous army. Do you see that there in verse 14? It says, the armies of heaven were following Him, riding on white horses and dressed and fine and white and clean. In verse 12, it tells us that He is coming to judge and to make war. As well, in verse 12, it tells us that he means business, doesn't it? This great and fearsome picture of him. What does it say in verse 12? His eyes are like a blazing fire. They're not soft and gentle and kind. And of course, his robe, it tells us, marks, has, bears the marks of death. Dipped in blood, isn't that what it says? And we see in verse 15, we have this great picture of this sword coming out of his mouth. And of You'll know if you're familiar with the Scriptures that the sword is synonymous with God's Word. It says that He is coming to judge the world with His Word. Finally, we see, and finally we see where is it there in verse 15? 
words that I hope if you were here a couple of weeks ago in Revelation 14, you'll recognize. Remember, we, we looked at that chapter and how did it conclude? It told us about the great winepress of, of God's wrath. And here, this rider of the white horse, that is what he has come to do. Before we move on, we need to look at these other couple of verses, 17 and 18, because this great image of this white horse coming with power to judge is capped off with this very grim picture. Do you remember what verses 17 and 18 say? Have a look down at them and remind yourselves of them. See what it says? There's an angel, isn't there? Standing in the sun, calling upon the birds of the air to prepare themselves for a feast. Don't know if you were here last week, but we looked at a different feast, didn't we? The feast of the Lamb. The feast of God's people where His bride and His bridegroom come together. The great wedding feast. Well, this is the great supper of God. It's a grim affair, isn't it? See what it says? The corpses of all. From the greatest to the least, kings, generals, mighty men, horses and their riders, free and slaves, small and great. As Jesus comes, they're saying, get ready. Get ready, birds. There's going to be a great feast. All these people are going to be here for you to devour. It's a great and terrifying picture, isn't it? A picture of Jesus, the Son of God, coming with his army with force and power the King of kings. As we sit here and as we look at these verses together, I recognize that for some of us, this is a very different picture of Jesus than, than perhaps we're used to. But I want us to see that it is a really important picture because it tells us that Jesus will one day return powerfully and he will come as King. I was writing this this week. I was thinking, how can I illustrate this? Because it's really, it's truly remarkable scene, isn't it? It's quite hard to equate to anything else in our world. But the only sort of one thing that came to mind uh, were the floods that we saw in England this past week on the news. And the reason I think that it's similar to the floods is because just like no one can stop the rain once it begins to fall, or, or, or no one can stand against the power of an onrushing flood, so it is with Jesus. Because you see, what does this passage tell us? It tells us that when Jesus decides to return, he will come with such power that no one will be able to stand against him or stop him. And that is why I think it's like the flood. You can imagine standing there, you just wouldn't stand a chance. You couldn't stop it. And that is what this imagery tries to convey verse after verse, picture after picture of this powerful king coming. As we think about how this applies to us, I want to say right at the very beginning that this picture of Jesus has implications for our fight against sin and for our struggle against the devil. But we'll come to those implications in our second point. What I want us to see, or what I want us to think about, is how it challenges our desire to have him come. And what I mean by that is, is when we think about Jesus, and we think about this picture of him returning with power and authority, I think we know all of us deep down in our hearts, maybe not today, but certainly at some stage in our lives, we don't actually want this. 
Do you know what I mean? Is, is that not the reality for you? Maybe at one stage or another in your lives that, that we don't want Jesus to come back? Maybe you've, or maybe you're, something's happening in your life at the minute and, and, and it's going really, really well. Or maybe something is about to happen in the next couple of weeks and in the back of your mind you're thinking, do you know what, Jesus, it would be great if you could just put off coming until I've gone through this experience or done this thing that I'm really looking forward to. It's because we're all sinful people. We know that here, don't we? We know that we struggle with the kingship of Jesus. Like I said, some of us perhaps have a plan for our lives or, 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 or we're doing okay. So we're happy ruling our lives. We're happy taking charge. Some of us sadly don't want Jesus to return because actually, truth be told, we're quite happy with our sin. We know we're not perfect. We know we're not perfect. But we're doing no harm, and we just want left alone. You see, this passage challenges us. It challenges us, doesn't it? It challenges our love of self, our love of sin, and it challenges us with this great reality that Jesus is coming. And He's coming as the Son of God. He's coming as one with power and authority. He's coming as one who is going to reclaim this world from which he was once rejected. And he is coming to take charge. And when he comes, no one or no thing will be able to stand in his way. It's funny, we're maybe, I said this is quite an odd picture of Jesus, one that we're not used to. But even if you've been a Christian for many, many years, we need to ask ourselves, how do we think? How do we think about Jesus? What do we think of him? Do we see him in this way? Is this included in our relationship with him? Do we desire his return? Do we long for his rule? Are we even ready for him to come back? This passage challenges what we think about Jesus because it presents him to us in a remarkable light. He is coming. He is king of kings. And he is coming in power. As we consider those questions, I want us to move on to our second point, which tells us that not only will Jesus' return be powerful, but it will be victorious. Excuse me. And you'll see there, again, very simply, very straightforwardly, then in this point, that Jesus' return will be victorious. And we see this in our remaining verses, which describe the moment Jesus clashes with the enemy. And I want us to see, as we look at these verses, how much of a non-event it is, okay? How much of a non-event this battle is. Um, let's, let's read them um, very quickly together, verses 19 to 21. See what, see what happens in verse 19? Then, John says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs in his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It's great, isn't it? We were reading this verse, and I hope you picked up on this earlier when Alex 
read it, but there's kind of a rising tension, isn't there? It's a bit like, I don't know um, if you've ever seen, uh, I've forgotten, uh, um, Apocalypse 9, you know, the, the helicopter's coming in and the ride of the Valkyries is on, and it's just the tension is rising and the battle's about to commence. And that's what it's like when we read these verses, 11 to 19. And even there in 19, what do we see? We get the description of the army, the enemy that is going to face Jesus down in this last gas battle. But what happens in verse 20? The battle is over as soon as Jesus and his army meets them. Look look at verse 20. See what happens? They've just arrived at one another. But what happens? It doesn't tell us about a battle. It tells us of the capture of the beast and the false prophet. And then it tells us how they are thrown alive into the lake of burning sulfur. There's a wee note there that John puts into us. It tells us that these are the two beasts described in Revelation 13. I don't know if you remember those, but we talked about them. They're used by the dragon to deceive the world into worshiping the devil and not God. Remember, Al and I took each of those sermons in a piece, and we remember how terrifying and strong the beast seemed. John reminds us of that because he wants us to remember those verses. But he wants us to see that even though they seem strong in Revelation 13, poof, they're gone. Jesus has arrived. And and, and where are they? Their destruction is finished in an instant. And it tells us, doesn't doesn't he, in 21, that after the destruction, the defeat of their army follows. And they are left to be eaten, as promised, by the birds of the air. I want to make a a quick note about verse 21. And I say quick because we covered this actually this morning in in adult Bible class. And it's to remind you that this passage is not literal. Remember, we know that about the book of Revelation. We don't read it literally. It's filled with images and pictures. And the reason I say that is because when we read verse 21, it seems that when Jesus returns, his enemies will be destroyed. We know that's not true from elsewhere in the Bible. We know that they won't be annihilated, that they won't just disappear into nothing. Rather, the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, his judgment upon those who oppose him will be to face the fullness of God's wrath forever. And it's important, I want you to know that because, well, I think it's clear how we, we need to know that. We need to know that God's justice is not just to destroy his enemy forever but that they will face God's wrath forever. But I want to add that in there because sometimes we can read this verse and we think that it's a literal description of what is going to happen. But what is this verse about if it's not about the annihilation of God's enemies? Well, look at the point behind me. It is about the emphatic nature of Christ's victory. Isn't that the focus? Christ has come. He's riding in. He's got his army with him. But lo and behold, here's the enemy he's meeting. But it's gone. The focus is not on the enemy, but on the rider on the white horse. There's only one way, again, I can think about illustrating this. And and the reason I've struggled to illustrate this is because most battles in history have involved actual fighting. Um, There's only one instance that I can think of, and it's a bit of a stretch, um, where one act started and finished the battle. And it's the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, I don't know how well you can see that picture, 
there's nothing in it. That's the point, okay? And I recognize, I recognize that the war, Second World War had been going for many, many years. But my point is that such was the power of those two warheads that the moment they left the Enola Gay, the airplane that, that was sent to drop them, the moment they left that airplane and descended to the earth, the battle for these two cities was over almost the minute it began. I mean, look at that picture. The Japanese Imperial Army didn't stand a chance. And I use this image because I think it's so vivid. And I want us to keep this image in our mind and go back to this passage, Revelation 19. Because I think this is just a snippet of what is happening here before our eyes. That such is the power of Jesus Christ that his enemies do not stand a chance. Now, let, this, let the magnitude of this sink in a minute, okay? Let, let's labor this because John labors it. Now, you, we mentioned right at the very beginning of our sermon that we've been waiting the whole book for this moment. We've been waiting since the beginning of Revelation, since the middle of August, to get to the return of Christ. How long do you think Christ's enemies have been waiting for this moment? Well, they've been waiting since the moment they rebelled against him in eternity. And think about their efforts against Jesus in this time. What are they doing? Well, they're currently embroiled in a war against him. They're trying their hardest to destroy his church. They're trying their hardest to deceive his people. We've even read how they've even, they've even been in attacks or fights with Jesus' archangel. And here we read of their chance. They have this chance to finally face Jesus down, take him on face to face. But such is the power of our king that it ends in an instant. We need to know that this is how it's going to be for the evil of the world. We need to remember that evil is not an equal, an opposite power to God. It's an enemy that will be destroyed. It will be destroyed just like that. I want to think as we come to a conclusion about how this applies in our first point, we talked about how we might not want Jesus to come because, well, we maybe prefer our own rule or we don't want to lose our sin. And I hope as we see the second half of this passage just how foolish that is. I mean, hopefully you know that it is foolish because Jesus' rule is better than our rule and that sin actually causes us harm and that the fruit of his spirit causes us good. But this passage tells us that unless we side with Jesus, we won't stand a chance. And that is why we need to take this picture of Jesus seriously. This is why we need to repent of our desire to live our own way. This is why we need to make efforts to tackle the sin in our lives. Because one day Jesus will return. And unless we have trusted him for our Savior... He will be victorious over us and over all evil. As well as the news of Jesus' return acting as a warning for us, it's here to encourage us. Isn't that what the book of Revelation is about? It's, it's a book about encouragement, encouraging us to persevere. Well, as God's people, we're called to persevere in the knowledge that Jesus is returning. And here we have this promise confirmed We've talked about it all the way through, haven't we? The lamb is coming back. The lamb wins. Well, here we see it. 
detailed out for us in this great picture of what John saw, this great image. And this week or this evening or even right now, as we struggle in our fight with sin, as we endeavor to resist the devil and his deception, this is the picture of Jesus we need to keep in our minds. I know it might not be what we're used to, but I want us to see that this is our reason. Here is our Savior. This is why we keep obeying His ways. This is why we keep trusting in His rule. And this is why we keep faithfully waiting for His return. This picture of Jesus not only challenges our love of self and our love of sin, but I hope that it assures you, if you're a member of God's kingdom, that when Jesus comes, it will be the end. There's no coming and taking people and then coming back. This is it. This is the end. And when Jesus returns, he will return in power and his return will be victorious. And all of the struggles of this world that we bear, they will come to an end. Let me finish. Let me, uh, let me draw a couple of things to a close. So let me, let me close by, by going back to the very picture that I started with, the Lord of the Rings. Remember I told you about the, the scene in the Lord of the Rings and about how just the right moment Gandalf came and he saved the day. Well, something that I omitted in my telling of that scene was that just before the battle of Helm's Deep, Gandalf and the commander, they, they parted ways. And the last thing, or one of the last things Gandalf said to the commander of the people of Rohan he said, look to the east on the fifth day. He said, look to the east on the fifth day. And lo and behold, that's what he did. And lo and behold, that's when Gandalf appeared. On the fifth morning in the east, as the sun was rising, he came. The reason I tell you this now, the reason this is important, is because it tells us that it wasn't just a coincidence that Gandalf happened to appear when the sun was rising and when the battle was about to go against the people of Rohan. It is to remind us or to assure us that he has planned, he had planned all along to arrive precisely when he did so that the people of Helm's Deep would be saved. And the reason I finish with this is because so it is with Jesus. These verses before us, it's not a made-up story. It's not well-wishing. This is God's word, the words of the one who is faithful and true. This is his promise. He is coming back. And if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, there's no wondering, there's no sense of being unsure if he's coming back or not. I mean, I admit we don't know when he's coming back, but we know that because he has promised to return, he will return. He will, in fact, return exactly when he intends to. And when he comes, he will come in power and he will be victorious. In the meantime, we need to persevere, don't we? We need to keep fighting the good fight. For one day, we will all see, maybe not necessarily a rider on a white horse, but we will see the word of God made flesh coming to save us. As we consider this Jesus, as we consider his encouragement to us and the challenge he gives us. Let us conclude our time together in prayer.
Let me pray for us. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus, we thank you for these words written about you in the Psalms. And we thank you that you showed your servant, John, exactly what they mean. And we thank you tonight that through your spirit and through your word, we can see and know them too. And we pray that our eyes would be cast upon you, the King who is coming to save us powerfully and victoriously. We pray that we would serve you and love you and that we would long for your return. Amen.